Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, welcome Solar Warriors. Whether you're listening in on the day that this episode drops, which is 23rd of December, or some other day or time over the holidays, I would like to wish you a very, very Merry Christmas from me and the Suncast family. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got. That's your time. Today's conversation is all about equity and inclusion, the often long and difficult, but almost always rewarding journey of entrepreneurship the path of a true solar warrior and the thousands of lives he and his team have helped, empowered, and improved along the way. Jeff Greenfield surely shows us the Christmas spirit and is an entrepreneur whom I've admired from afar for many, many years. His solar company, Third Sun Solar, stands as a shining example of how a small town team with a mighty dream can make a difference no matter where you decide to start and grow your business. Jeff and his wife started Third Sun in Middle America long before there was an actual solar market to support a salary, let alone a family. Yet they've not only survived, but thrived in the great solar state of Ohio. They are founding members of Amicus Cooperative and have a compelling story that I think will warm your heart as we head into the colder, shorter, darker days of winter. As we contemplate this season of giving, I hope that you'll appreciate all the intention and attention Jeff and his team have paid to giving back and paying it forward as Third Son became bedrock of their local and regional community. And I also hope you'll take some time to check out Jeff's inspirational new project, his podcast, Solar for All. For more on that, don't touch the dial. If you like what you're hearing here, and this is your first time checking out Suncast, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for sharing your holiday season with us and allowing us to be a part of whatever it is that you're doing today. I want to ask to please subscribe to the show. Whatever app you're in, it has some for some version of follow or subscribe. And if you click on it, then that'll ensure you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Short form practical episodes on Tuesdays and long, longer, usually an hour or more deep dives into the unconventional careers that are leading the solar industry on Thursdays. And of course, you can always check all of our back catalog of more than 430 additional founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. And a final note, a special thanks to everyone who's tuned in this year and helped Suncast become the top solar podcast in the industry. I am so incredibly grateful that you keep coming back 
and I'm honored that we've had a chance to chronicle the journeys of so many solar and clean energy champions right here. There's a lot more coming and queued up in the new year. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. A lot of this stuff is kind of overlap with my backstory of like, I started out as a, you know, self-employed solar electrician, more fascinated with pulling wire and pointing solar south and self-educated on the whole thing of venture capital and private equity and the whole concept of maybe the business itself is the product and that has value. You know, some founders know that from day one and start a company knowing that the company itself will build in value. And I totally get it now, you know, Third Sun Solar is worth something, but that wasn't part of our agenda or operating culture for a good chunk of the first 10 years. Our concept was, hey, wow, we get, we can actually get paid to help people go solar what a great thing. And then it turns slowly into like, we can get paid to help people go solar and we can create jobs in the poorest county in Appalachian, Ohio. What a great thing. You know, it's still evolving, but now on that list of what a great thing is, and this organization with a you know brand value and recognition and repeat customers and institutional memory is valuable in and of itself. What a great thing. Kind of a one of those happy accidents. Jeff Greenfield is a clean tech entrepreneur that uses the power of business as a force for good. I have known and admired his brand, which, as you just heard, was not something he thought a whole lot about in the inception moments of the business. Uh, his company, Third Sun Solar, which itself is an award-winning installation firm that has been operating since 2000 in Ohio and, the, and around, around the Midwest in that area. And it's been a long time goal to get Jeff onto the show in no small part to talk about why he decided to put his company in Ohio and how he got involved in things like Amicus and why he pivoted to being a B Corp and having it be a, a female run business. All those things we'll get into today. But first, let me welcome my friend Jeff to the show. Hey, Nico. Glad to be here. I think we were supposed to have our interview months and months ago and rescheduled several times because I finally bumped into somebody as busy as myself. So <laughs> really good to be here. It happens. And in the meantime, you launched a podcast, Solar for All. Is that right? Yep. Solarforall.show. So I'm, I'm not quite at 400 plus episodes, but it's been a blast so far and I'm really enjoying it. I can't wait to hear more. We'll talk a bit about why Solar for All needed to exist. But before that, let's get a bit more into who Jeff Greenfield is and why things like Third Sun needed to exist. I'd like to hear a bit about your cultural upbringing. You said to me in a previous conversation that you were effectively raised as a feminist. How did your household environment inform the way you look at the world? Yeah, I give big props to my mom, who is a very progressive person, very involved in the civil rights movement. And uh, I'm sure that that was a as it was for for many people and for for you know our culture as a whole, a pretty pivotal time. Um, I was born the week that Martin Luther King was shot, and mm. I can only imagine you know the the stress and fear and unknown. You know what's what's going on in this world? 
<laughs> do we want to bring kids into this world? My dad also, you know, was progressive and more intellectual. And my mom was more like, let's get in the streets. And yeah. so I, you know, carried, I recall a lot of anti-nuke banners at marches. That was, you know, more of what was going on when I was, you know, five, six, seven, eight. This is in upstate New York in Syracuse. We went to a Unitarian, you know, to call it a church would be a stretch, a Unitarian society filled with a, a variety of people, but all they're, you know, valuing uh, connection with each other and community, but also social justice and progress. So that was kind of a big context. And then I had three sisters and no brothers. So my dad was out of the house quite a bit at work. And then uh, my parents split up when I was 11 and a half or so. And a big chunk of my upbringing was in a, a house full of women. Mm. So maybe, maybe, you know, that's a big part of why I kind of can look at the world through their eyes in a different way than I might've, if I had brothers. Learned early on not to leave the, leave the toilet seat up among the many lessons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. We can go into a, a big esoteric discussion about what is right up or down and, uh, <laughs> at least uh, great. being a little bit less selfish, I've got a lot of work to do. I think I've I think what I the advantage I have is just a little bit more awareness. It's really powerful what you just said. Being less selfish, I don't think I've ever really considered that leaving the toilet seat up was selfish. That ripples out to so many decisions we have. Yeah, you could make the argument that make leaving it down. If you're a woman and you use the, the bathroom and you leave it down, you're making an assumption that you know the yeah. next person would want it down. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I think it's being thoughtful. Our life is riddled with assumptions, isn't it? And that's something we're going to touch on a lot in our discussion today. Jeff, the more I get a chance to kind of know you and learn more about how you think about the world, the more interested I am in. And I think this is probably true for, for a lot of the folks that I get a chance to really have deep conversations with, but I get interested in their, their upbringing. Like what are the things that colored or created their experience? And allowed them to see the world in ways that are, in many ways, like different from the rest of the society that surrounds them. And, and, the, and you, I think you have a particular ability to see things from a different angle and through a different lens. One of the, those lenses that we share is having been Peace Corps volunteers. But as most folks know, you don't jump into Peace Corps without going through college. Most people go to college before they go to Peace Corps. Coming up in upstate New York, being raised, as you said, in a household full of women, how would you characterize your thoughts and desires around sort of getting out of the home and moving into adult life and careerhood? Did you have particular things that you thought you wanted to focus on? How did you structure your decision-making around going after those goals? Hindsight gives us a perspective that, you know, evolves and changes. So looking back, I, I do see a real strong kind of core value of service to others, be of service, make the world a better place one way or another in little ways and bigger ways. And I think that that is a relic of how I was raised and not just my parents, but other, you know, influential people that I was exposed to. My, again, I, I went to this Unitarian church and a reverend, if you will, was a, an intellectual and he was a, a really neat guy. He had a great charismatic personality, had a lot of joy in his life. And I, I was lucky to spend some time, you know, with him as a teenager on Sundays and 
go through this kind of, you know, liberal religious youth program. I think it was my freshman year in college, he actually went and got arrested at an Air Force base, you know, this uh, group of other religious progressives. And he was, he, you know, climbed the fence and went and hammered on a, you know, B-52 bomber and, you know, symbolically wow. was, you know, banging our, uh, our swords into plowshares, knowing full well mm-hmm. as a federal offense. And then he went to jail. And so I had a, a series of letters and correspondence with him um, when, when he was uh, in federal prison. And, and again, this is just, I don't know, thinking about what are we here for? And if there's problems or things that are, that could be better, you know, what is our responsibility? What is our role? You know, in hindsight, that kind of thinking and interaction and influence, you know, was pretty, pretty important and pretty big. At the time, it was just, you know, some letters that I was writing to Nick, thinking that, you know, he was probably bored and lonely and would like my letters and it turned into this kind of conversation. But I wanted to get out of the house. I wanted to be independent. I wanted to explore the world. I wanted to get away from, you know, like many kids wanted to get away from their parents. I definitely wanted to break out of my hometown. And, you know, I had friends that had extended families and multi-generations in the same town. And there was no question for them that they were going to get married and raise a family and go to family, you know, gatherings with thousands of cousins. For me, my family was spread out. So Syracuse was kind of an accident where my dad got a job as a professor and we moved from New Mexico to Syracuse. I had no attachment there other than my friends. The weather certainly wasn't keeping me there. So when it was time to choose college and one of them was uh, in Ohio, that seemed pretty far away and the weather was definitely nicer. So I had my experience going to school in Ohio. I did jump around on majors and eventually settled on political science because the language requirement, I could do that in Spain. My, uh, my sister had done a, a, a high school senior year in Spain and had a great time. And I was like, I want to do that. That sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, so I spent junior year, uh, a semester in Spain. And then the other, the rest of that half, I'd, I'd taken classes in the summer and doubled up on classes so I graduated in three and a half years. And so I took that other half a year off and hitchhiked across the Sahara and was, you know, I, I was 20 years old without a cell phone. And, you know, in hindsight, I'm sure my mom was really worried, not knowing, you know, was I in Tunisia or Algeria or Morocco? But, you know, every so often I would, you know, make a phone call or send letters saying where I thought I was going to be next. We're so conditioned by modern technology and the ability to, you know, post or text or, you know, instantly know where any of our loved ones are. But back then, you know, it was a, a big blank space and uh, a mystery exactly where I was. That was a pretty formative time. And you, like I, um, when we refer to back then, we're talking about the 90s. I as well studied in Spain. I, I did have a mobile phone while I was in Spain. It was 2001. But uh, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer some 10 years after you, I, we still didn't have technology. I didn't have access to the internet. There was no Facebook. If people listening can imagine that world. What was life like back then, Grandpa Nico? Yeah. I literally wrote letters by hand to my now wife then girlfriend who was herself studying as a Rotary scholar in Costa Rica. Like wrote letters and sent them through the mail. And my parents sent me gift packages through the mail. They couldn't wire me money. 
They had to actually hide it in tampons and put it in care packages. <laughs> oh, the fun of being a Peace Corps volunteer. What, what led you into the Peace Corps after college? Yeah. So I think the concept of service to others was, you know, well, I don't know, well, well uh, ingrained in me, you know, genuine, genuine desire to, to help, to do good. You know, in hindsight, thinking back, you know, looking with a critical eye at, at our foreign aid programs and the Peace Corps itself and revisiting a lot of these things, you know, it's somewhat embarrassing or it's somewhat, I don't mm-hmm. know, uh, I'm conflicted about this, you know, white savior pattern that maybe the Peace Corps is emblematic of. On the other hand, I was also very selfish and it was a way to have Uncle Sam pay me and pay my way and, you know, backstop me to go over and have adventures in the jungle in another country. I'd already, you know, lived with a family in Spain and, you know, was trying to learn Spanish at 2 a.m. in the disco and, you know, was, I called it culture surfing and it was, you know, super, super fascinating and rewarding to be out of the mainstream dominant U.S. culture, you know, that's lesson number one is it wasn't so much about being in Spain or North Africa or Europe. It was being away from, you know, the, the, the culture that comes at you in so many ways. It was a real firsthand account of, of the importance of culture and the, the, the influence yeah. of culture. So anyway, yeah. it was, uh, it seemed very practical and I'm a little older than you, Nico. So it was like not the nineties, it was the, the late eighties. And so Rambo mm-hmm. and, you know, the advertisements mm-hmm. for the Marlboro man and that guy on the cam, I didn't, I didn't smoke camel cigarettes, but I wanted to be that guy wearing khakis with the Land Rover and the, the, you know, I don't know, the, the, the jungle float and the mm-hmm. machete. I thought whatever he was doing in that camel ad, that looks pretty cool. I think, you know, women would like me if I was like that guy, which I'm sure yeah. is, you know, makes absolutely no sense at all. But to the 18 year old, you know, testosterone addled brain, it, it yeah. made perfect sense. And so the Peace Corps was my ability to, to check the box of doing good, doing service to others, and then also checking probably a bigger box of learning and absorbing and having an adventure and, and having my chance to, to go out into the world you know, my grandfather was in the Air Force in World War II and had all sorts of amazing adventures and it was a big influence on me. And so as a pacifist, yeah, I certainly didn't want to go out and have my adventures in, in the Air Force. So, so serving my country somewhat and having my adventures uh, in the Peace Corps was a perfect fit. Plus it stalled the whole concept of having to get a job after, after college. All my friends were you know, many of them were going to Procter and Gamble and getting their first of many corporate jobs. And I knew I didn't want to do that. I'm going to leave a little breadcrumb for us to come back to here. But as I listen to you think about, or, you know, sort of explain the decision processes and the things that led you to go to the Peace Corps, I identify with them in, in a lot of ways and almost all of them. And it reminds me of something that you said in a previous conversation that you're one of the things that you're looking, looking for with solar for all, as well as just generally given the diversity in your life experiences, getting more white males, uh, white straight males to recognize their privilege. And it's not lost on me and hopefully not on you, the incredible privilege that allowed us to go to the Peace Corps at all. Like I can name on one hand, the number of 
black Americans that I knew in the Peace Corps. I actually knew more Latino Americans in the Peace Corps than black Americans, in fact. So as we talk about a little bit later, the idea of, of diversity and justice and equity in our industry and in the world around us, it's instructive and it's helpful for us to think about kind of the way we go through life as well and the choices that we make. And those choices lead us to things like careers. And I, like you, deferred these important decisions on who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do to make money by going to the Peace Corps. It was one of the ways that I was able to, I was afforded the privilege of doing that. And I was paid to do it. Um, not a lot of money. And we often like to brag about how it wasn't a lot of money, but in the country where we were, it was a lot of money. What career path did you not go down, but always thought you would? You know, I still want to be an architect. I think it would be pretty, pretty cool to, you know, I built my own house and I'm still to this day, find myself daydreaming while I'm biking or running or lying in bed, trying to go to sleep of, of forms and shapes and layouts and structures. And I sketch mm-hmm. him, you know, I don't know if I would have been able to get through the more rigorous school of, of getting a degree in architecture. And I've got friends that are in the biz and, you know, mm-hmm. it's a lot of grind and it's a lot of, you know, working your way up. I don't know if that, you know, the reality of architecture would have worked out, but I, I sure like the idea of, you know, thinking about three dimensions and forms and that merging of beauty and aesthetic with functionality and practicality. You know, I built my whole house and I didn't put any closets in it. So I, I definitely was missing some of that practicality piece. You didn't miss the closets on purpose? I wish I could say it was on purpose and I was trying to make a statement, but no, I, I, it, was, it was inexperience and amateurness and you know, regret afterwards. And we did a expansion and I think we, we overcompensated and we put in a lot of storage and closets, but uh, that's... That's a, I think something I, I, you know, my, my parents and, and relatives, when I was young, I was, you know, I think they talk about three-dimensional thinking and the ability to visualize things. And some people have it and some people don't. I certainly had it. And I was always building. I was always fiddling in the garage. I was hanging out in hardware stores to this day. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, on the, and the range of roles in solar, you know, there's folks that are more technical and then they learn the business and the marketing side. Some folks are great at marketing and leadership and hire some talent for the, the technical side. Um, I definitely have been much more on the technical side um, in that spectrum, probably due to my kind of fascination with building. And, and I, I mean, right now I'm, I'm building out a van. I'm doing, you know, the, the, the van life thing. And it's, it's a challenge. It's a really neat thing. And my wife is like, why, why don't we buy something that's done? Why don't we, we can afford to pay someone who's really good at this and has a shop to do a better job than you're doing. And I'm like, but I've got the creative problem solving. I've got the, you know, how do I, you know, how do I square this with that? And, you know, put the stove here, but also have room for the, you know, for the electrical system, that problem solving and creativity of, finding a path forwards, you know, it's kind of, kind of what I do and get, I get a, I get a rise out of it. Well, a key part of your story is what many perhaps clicked play to hear about. And that's the founding of a company that's been around for 20 years called Third Sun Solar. At, at what point did you, A, become fascinated with clean energy and solar, B, decide to move to rural Ohio and, and, and stay there, and C, decide that the best way to 
have an economic benefit at that point was to leverage this this inherent or or perhaps nascent interest in in solar energy. Can you help me walk me through that? Yeah, yeah, sure. I don't know if there's a classic founder's story or entrepreneurial journey, but um, I believe I I follow the archetype path, and so kind of in time order, I've been you know focused on the environment and sustainability just as a as a core value. You know, probably in grade school and high school, pretty early, and you know the the no nukes marches were a lot about you know, the dangers of, of nuclear waste and, and, you know, water and all that stuff. And so that was just a kind of a ingrained in me and home power magazine was the, the old school hippies in the woods turned into let's be a resource to, of technology. And so, uh, right after Peace Corps, I was living in Portland, Oregon, doing carpentry and, you know, having a great time camping and going to music fests and, you know, meeting great people. I don't think I met anybody from, from Portland when I was living in Portland, I would go to Powell's bookstore and read the home power magazines just to learn about this tech, because it was really fascinating. I thought, you know, solar is going to be very important. It already is a, a way we could have the magic of lights and electricity and useful power uh, without the pollution, without the uh, the challenges of the way it was, you know, getting delivered to us. And I was also, you know, I leave out a part about being a amateur audiophile and techie. When I was a kid, I was trying to get a job in a, you know, in high school, trying to get a job in a, a stereo, you know, showroom and was spending all my money on amplifiers and talking about, you know, reading stuff about tech. So it's, it's kind of a, a fascination. And so overlap there. So next scene, we decide to get our graduate degrees so that we can go overseas. We as you and your partner? Yeah, Michelle and I met in college. I'd gone into the Peace Corps while she was still finishing college, but we did this long distance writing, very romantic uh, in hindsight. And, and we decided to stick together and came back and traveled together, went to Thailand, Southeast Asia, Indonesia um, for, I think it's nine months, hitchhiking around there with one-way ticket, finally ran out of money and time. We'd met somebody who said, hey, you can go to grad school for international development and it's all holistic. You can take all the classes that interest you, tons and tons of students from Asia, Latin America, and and Africa. It's like, wow, that sounds perfect because what's next? So we went to Athens, Ohio, to Ohio University's Master's in International Development, uh, with the reasoning being, hey, we can get a one-year master's degree and then go back overseas and get paid to travel or get paid to do good and live in cool, exotic cultures and enjoy that. And that's the big irony because, you know, we've been in Athens for, gee, I think it's probably almost 30 years. So we've graduated. We made a lot of friends. We fell in love with the area. Uh, Unlike, you know, the flatter corn and concrete filled parts of Ohio, uh, Southeastern Ohio is much more like West Virginia or Kentucky, rolling hardwood forests. And we met lots of great people that were there because of the environment. They were there because of affordable land. There were a lot of intentional communities. A lot of that sustainability culture was, you know, what we connected with. And art and music and 
you know, we had the best of both worlds. We had the rural rolling hills, but then we also had the, the university to bring in some international culture and such. And we graduated. And instead of going back overseas, my wife had the chance to start a low-income credit union, which is kind of right on the lines of what she was studying and planning on doing in her her goal of international service was micro enterprise and access to credit. And there's cool stuff going on with the Grameen Bank. And and I said, okay, well, I'm going to support you on that. You've got that. I can find work. And I found work with a, a nonprofit doing affordable housing development. And so it was a combination of my construction carpentry skills and understanding a little bit about how building goes with more of the organization and project management and planning stuff that I'd studied in college and kind of gotten a handle on and was hired to do that. And that exposed me to a lot more poverty than I had seen during grad school. Uh, You go a couple miles out of town and there's folks living in trailers with endemic multi-generational poverty that don't have running water, that don't have flush toilets, that have, you know, really terrible nutrition and are making do with uh, the best they can with a lot less than you and I have and raising kids in that environment that are, you know, often enough going to repeat. So that was a, a big education for me. That said, you know, we built our house at the time and uh, we bought land in the middle of nowhere and it did not have the utility grid to it or water. Um, so we put in our own water system and we put in our own solar uh, electric system, a wind system as well. You know, Third Sun Solar started out as Third Sun Solar and wind power. And in fact, the name Third Sun reflected solar electric PV, solar thermal, hot water, which we, we used to do, and then wind power, which is if you really get, you know, esoteric and look at the physics is really solar power you know, moving winds around because of temperature differentials. So anyway, that was, that was cool. So we, we built our own system while we're still doing uh, work in the nonprofits and people were fascinated for it. I think there was a hunger for it. We got a, an article written about our house in the paper and we were cautious to not claim it was a sustainable home. I think, you know, we were very realizing that we were, we were striving for sustainability and what is sustainability there's a lot of righteousness out there and we wanted to be real cautious about, about that. But that said, people were fascinated. And, and so I helped a friend with a system on the weekends. There's another construction company that was building log cabins and they were diversifying into one of their clients wanted a solar and wind powered system. So I helped him and he later you know, went on to be a, a competitor but a friendly competitor and someone is still a, a friend today. And so that's when we said, you know, this is what I really like to do. The technology is getting better and better. I like doing this stuff. Maybe this is what I should do. So hung up my shingle, so to speak, got business cards made, put notice in at my my nonprofit job. And with a a two-year-old crawling around and a newborn on on our on my wife and my hip started Third Sun Solar. And it was one person and it was mostly, it was more like self-employment. It was not, you know, visions of running a solar empire someday and, you know, building, building value in the company. It was much more of, more like a carpenter deciding I'm going to be a carpenter for myself and, 
instead of working for the man, I'm going to be self-employed. Jeff, I really appreciate the insight on the inception, kind of becoming a, a one-person company. I think most of us as entrepreneurs have had that moment where it's just us. We're trying to figure out what's next. But those who've known Third Son for a while would not recognize it as Jeff's company necessarily, would not recognize it as a one-person show. Uh, more than 30 employees now and 20 plus years in business. Can you talk to me a little about the evolution of the business? How and when did your wife become involved and some of the structural decisions you made around the nature of the business, who it's, who runs it, what kind of business, like a B Corp, et cetera? The story would be much different if Michelle didn't get involved when she did. You know, I was busy. I was driving a truck around. I was talking to folks on a cell phone and I was putting receipts in a shoebox. Michelle took a look at that shoebox and did some math. You know, it's pretty funny. She was getting paid to counsel small businesses and working for a nonprofit that was helping microenterprise. And she realized, hey, I've got a microenterprise upstairs in the attic because uh, that's where our, our, uh, our office was. You know, maybe I should work a little closer to home and help, help this small business. And so she did. It was, again, risky because we were depending on, on her income to diversify our income strain. But the work was there. The demand was there. There were people, you know, if I was willing to travel, you know, I could go up to Akron and do a project. I can go, up, you know, over to Cincinnati and do a project. There was folks with money that were, were willing to uh, invest in what at the time was still very rough technology. So, again, leap of faith. She quit her job and decided to work for, for the family business and did the math and said, Jeff, we got to double your prices. And so she brought the business brains. She, her dad had you know, been an entrepreneur. And so she grew up in that environment. My parents had been academics. And so I grew up in, in that environment. You know, lemonade stand. I think we both had lemonade stands and both had that kind of that drive. Hers made money, yours you're satiated people's thirst. Yeah, I was there to focus on satiating thirst. She might have cared about charging more than it cost. You know, I shouldn't say it so flipply. She she definitely had a lot of service mindset, a lot of make the world a better place mindset, a lot of sustainability lines mindset. Obviously, you know, that's why we became a couple and we're attracted to each mm -hmm. other. But what she did also have was a much better business mindset than me. You know, there's a, a book that I I love called Rocket Fuel by Gina Wickman and, uh, and another author. And it's in the EOS traction kind of library. But the whole concept of uh, an integrator and a visionary, when I read that, I, I really clicked. And so I'm the visionary. I can start things. I can see where we should be in two years, the next mountain top to climb. But boy, I'm not very good at deciding what goes in the backpack for that journey. And so a lot of good businesses have a pair and she is the integrator. She has historically yeah. been the integrator in our business that says, okay, we're going to need this much rope, this much food and about 10 more people. And it's going to take us two months, not a week. And she's the, the CEO of the company now, right? So we've just recently reorganized. And so she historically has been the integrator um, and mm -hmm. was the CEO and I was the president and our team would joke around that I'm the balloon and she's the string. And that's another yeah. good kind of metaphor to look at that integrator visionary uh, relationship that, that a visionary without a, an integrator or a team of integrators doesn't get much done. 
And so we w- operated for 20 years as, as that, that, that team. She has moved on. So she's got a lot of exciting things going on wow. with yoga and mindfulness and mm-hmm. still with a service bent. She's really focused on bringing the tools of mindfulness and nature and yoga to some underserved communities. So instead of, you know, waiting for someday, she's decided, hey, someday is now, let's move. Um, We can replace my integrator skills. And so about two, ah, three years ago now, we recruited and hired a new integrator. Uh, Her name's Roberta. She's amazing. And she is basically running the organization the same way that Michelle was. We've swapped titles and moved things around. So now I'm CEO and she is, uh, Roberta is chief operating officer. And Mm -hmm. Michelle is now has the title of co-founder and owner. And Michelle's still involved in the day-to-day in terms of banking and a bunch of kind of high-level ownership roles and cultural roles. But the goal is a year from now for her to be involved, you know, on a monthly basis, not on a daily or weekly basis in order to really get to the other side of this transition. So that said, you know, it's, it's, it's not accidental that our integrator is a woman. We have shaped the company as, as, you know, over the last 20 plus years to be very inclusive. And to, I think an organization led and run by women and, and multiple women evolves in a different path. And I think our company yeah. is a different flavor than another company that might be run by all men or by, you know, a dominant mm-hmm. bunch of men at the top. You know, I'm not going to say better or worse. I'm, I'm just going to say different. So I want to, I think we're going to spend a lot of time on the conversation that has been unfolding in our industry for a while and our culture for a while. But before we do that, I wanted to leave a little bit of space here for this visionary integrator conversation to bring it sort of bring it full circle, bring it to close. Uh, in a, you and I have talked a bit about off-camera ADD and its role as either a catalyst or a, um, or a fence guard <laughs> around our capacity. How do you think about entrepreneurship? You, know, you said to me before, you start stuff and can barely finish it. I identify with that in ways that are profound. You just discussed how you, in structural ways, surrounded yourself with integrators. But how do you, as an entrepreneur or visionary balloon, ensure that there are guardrails and that, that you have strings attached for people to pull, pull the balloon back down? Nico, that's where, you know, the overlap of personal growth and, you know, business professional growth. I don't know if there's a fence between the two, you mm-hmm. know, and if you look yeah. at, you know, historic titans and, and startup folks and, and, or leaders outside of business, it's personality, it's, it's life experience and it's, you know, is it, it's genetics, it's what you're born with. And it's also environment, what your nurturing exposure was while you're being formed and we're still evolving. So it's huge. I, I definitely, you know, would self-test and, and I've never been formally diagnosed as ADHD, but they didn't have that when I was a kid. But, you know, you interview my mom and she was probably like the, the mother of lots of kids, a big advocate for me. And got me into the gifted and talented program rather than, you know, kicked out of school. School was really hard. School was terrible for me. Somehow I made it through with a lot of love and support from, from, and patience from some teachers and uh, some, some mentors. And, but still to this day, I've got social skills and a social blindness where I can say stuff and not know it. And 
afterwards, someone will say, do you realize how that came off or how other people were impacted by that? I'm working on it and, uh, you know, with counseling and, and good therapists and, and good friends where I've got frank, open, honest conversations, you know, it's a big growth opportunity. Can you give me a tangible example? I feel like I'm not the only one here who is wondering, like, what are those blind spots? And I feel like a lot of those of us who are visionaries and an achievement oriented, perhaps feel very natural in leadership roles and don't feel very comfortable in employee roles migrate to listening to shows like Suncast because we want to start our own business or we want to go into a new culture, a new, new environment, a new industry, but we don't see our blind spots. Can, can you give me a, an, an example or two? So impatience and speed. For me, I see the answer. I'm there already and I want to get there as quickly as possible. There's some urgency, again, tied to mission, which might or might not be true. You know, I'm one of my, my, my mantras right now is go slow to go fast less is more. And I'm, I'm, I'm self-programming to try to counter and balance the way I'm wired in my historic momentum, which is fast, fast, fast. And that fast, fast, fast is an advantage in so many ways. It's, it helps me see the path and it's helped me see the destination before others do and in a more clear way than others might. But the detriment or the, the downside of that is that I, my team has got to be so patient with me I mean, I, I, I realize this and I thank them for it proactively. And I apologize sometimes when I recognize that I've, you know, inadvertently hurt somebody and more often than not, when someone lovingly reminds me or points it out that I didn't even see, they said, Jeff, you know, do you realize in that meeting that you interrupted her and you talked right over her and that someone was trying to say something and you steamrolled the whole conversation and redirected it? And so I've got to find that balance between not being too self-critical where I, you know, get depressed or stomp on myself and, you know, I don't want to be a woe is me kind of a guy, but I also want to learn from it and I want to improve and I want to, I want to do right. And I want to, you know, I, I truly believe intellectually that the group think the hive mind is valuable and that I want a culture where, Cindy and Joe and Steve all feel like they can raise their hand and say, yes, but what about this? Or did you think about this? You know, but I think at the end of the day, I also have this impatience and this hyper focus drive and speed that makes that hard and it makes it, you know, there's a, there's a conflict there. So that's, that's an example of what I'm working on is not interrupting people and to, create some space where other people can put some ideas in and it doesn't always have to be me, me, me. It's embarrassing. It makes me feel almost like it's my ego wanting to be right and wanting to be the hero where more often than not, it's accidental and habit and uh, inertia, you know, replaying these patterns that, that I'm, I'm doing a good job, you know, getting better at, but it still happens. Can you explain a little bit about how where you live has informed your views around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And I think we're going to have a, a longer conversation on this topic, but I want to start there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you might've had your Peace Corps experience in Guatemala be the, the birth of some of this realization. But for me, it was definitely in Zaire, one of the, the most impoverished part of the world. And you know, a terrible classic example of exploitation of core periphery, the King of Belgium, you know, 
was was an amazingly horrible person. And yet the folks in the village where I lived at and the villages where I was traveling and working were amazingly resilient and were amazingly doing more with less and and happy in many ways in spite of their poverty. And that was like a, a light went off about justice and exploitation and resource extraction. And then the concept of, you know, recognition of how the tailwinds of my life being born, not only to, to upper middle-class family and having all these, you know, educational advantages compared to a lot of folks, that's where I realized that and didn't and stopped taking it for granted. So fast forward to uh, rural Ohio and Appalachian Ohio, you know, this is coal country. This was timber country and the timber was all cut. The fur was all trapped and uh, traded. And then they started digging for coal and it was, you know, not quite slavery, but it was indentured servants and it was Eastern European immigrants from extreme poverty brought over and put into incredible labor conditions to mine coal and coke uh, that built Pittsburgh and New York City and Philadelphia and World War II and all the armaments. I mean, the history of extraction and exploitation here is 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 very real. And you can, you know, I live within walking distance to mines and uh, the largest underground mine explosion, you know, there's a plaque uh, and some ruins. So it's it's very real. And the poverty that I got exposed to when I was working with nonprofits doing affordable housing was pretty close to the poverty I saw in Africa. No running water, no hot water for sure. Electricity has been turned off and people, and there's no, no, uh, no sewage. People are, are crapping in the woods and food stamps are keeping them alive and, um, you know, a lot of real depressing, sad situations about folks trying to, to make their best. That was a, a wake-up call for me. And that's one of the reasons why we said, okay, we don't need to go back over to Latin America or, or Asia or Africa to serve and to try to address some of the inequalities and some of the economic issues. And in fact, maybe hurting folks less might be the, the step rather than trying to help folks that have been hurt and maybe trying to address our own backyard and our carbon and and economic footprint is the place to start. So there's a lot of things going on there, but long and short of it, you know, we've been here for 30 years and I really realized how much the exploitation, the multi-generational poverty and exploitation uh, and lack of wealth, lack of resources can impact a location. And now I, I understand it more than I did and I see it. And I think the the current conversation, you know, uh, America is primarily on the coasts and certainly our culture is fixated on, on the lifestyles on the coasts and we are in flyover country and not the last election, but the one before that was a bit of a wake up call that the, the Democratic Party probably shouldn't, you know, take for granted the white, poor, quote unquote, working class as being lockstep, always going to vote their way. I think that there was an opening and I think that's still there. And um, a lot of that is, is 
I think being talked about, there's more writing about it. There's, there's more discussion about it. But I would say as I focus on equity and inclusion and in my space in the solar world, uh, in the back of my mind, I think I've got a sm- slightly different hook that class is part of that. And you, you could be white, male, straight, cis, but because of the class background of your grandparents and your parents, you might have a much different cultural experience and be, you know, have, have a different set of tailwinds, even though it's not as visible, you know, as a, as a black woman walking down the street, you know, you could dress a certain way and probably fit in pretty well and have a lot of advantages, but still because of your life experience and that of your, your family upbringing, you know, still be an other or a different Are you still trying to rely on Excel spreadsheets for the financial analysis of your solar and energy storage projects? Energy Toolbase is your savior. ETB developer sales and modeling platform helps developers streamline the sales process and close more deals by providing an intuitive project modeling process that precisely calculates utility costs, energy savings, and project economics in a transparent and defensible way. With the industry's only in-house utility rates team constantly tracking and updating their database of more than 70,000 rates, you can ensure the utmost accuracy. And finally, you'll communicate your company's value proposition to your customers with fully customizable proposals and document templates and close more deals. That's why we're here, folks. Go test drive the industry's solar and storage modeling platform of choice. Use the code SUNCAST and get a 30-day extended free trial energytoolbase.com or click on any of the toolbase logos at mysuncast.com. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. (laughs) But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast, I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. I think we're going to increasingly be confronted with this reality as an industry when we think about the energy transition, when we think about not just the financial lot, but the legislative requirements. Our industry leans on the, the keys to to unlocking those legislative possibilities and policies ha- ha- lie right now, as uh, one of my one of our dear friends in Washington recently said in uh, President Manchin's hands. And the reality is that in our society, it's not that we have some unnecessary uh, or unrealistic fixation on fossil fuel. It is that it has such a core and rooted history in our communities and in our welfare and well-being as a society that energy, coal in particular. While it's a power source, it is an income generation source. And, and there are a lot of folks that are in that transition getting, they're losing 
their ability to maintain their family's welfare. How do you, in that environment, see Third Son and others like your company helping bridge the gap? I mentioned Third Son has a kind of a naming story tied to the three forms of solar energy, solar thermal, solar electric, and wind, indirect solar. The second naming strategy was Michelle and I have two baby boys and this is our baby. And so it's our third son, a little play on words. <laughs> the third naming strategy ties in with what we're, what we're talking about now. And this is a, there's a book by Jeremy Rifkin called Entropy. And he basically ties the socio-political economic forces and, and reality of, of different eras to the energy of the energy source of those eras. And the first solar age, he argues, was, you know, the steam, the pre-coal when, when wood fire, wood kept us warm, wood cooked our food, and then slowly wood was, you know, starting to drive mechanical innovation. And in Europe, they, you know, not Europe, but rather in, in Britain, you know, they cut the last tree, you know, the last major tree and started realizing that forests, you know, probably should, shouldn't be their fuel source. And that was solar energy. A tree is nothing but, you know, a hundred summers worth of stored up energy. And they found this black rock that would burn and release thousands of summers worth of stored energy from, from the, the, the historic era. And boom, the second solar age was born. And uh, that's been driving us. And we've been living off of historic ancient sunshine uh, to our detriment, you know, now that we know the, the science of, of global warming and, and carbon, and we've built a, an economy around it, we've built politics around it and power around it and social structures around it and uh, kind of a, a, a centralized supply and monopoly economy around it. And right now we are in the transition to the third solar age of direct PV and it is a disruptive change that we're going through, just like every transition has been. And I think it's tied to how we organize ourselves politically and economically. And solar hits all the rooftops. Solar hits a little bit less in Alaska and a little bit more in San Diego. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of by nature democratic. And it's not something that you have to have a ton of capital and you have to, you know, be a monopoly to, to, to harvest it. You can harvest it in a very egalitarian, democratized, non-monopolistic way. And so that was, you know, I didn't come up with this stuff. It's in a pretty interesting book by Jeremy Rifkin, but that's mm -hmm. third sun. That's our third solar age. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're heralding in and part of. And so we became a B Corp. We intentionally are focused on not just doing the business of solar, but how we do business with our suppliers, with our customers, with our stakeholders and the communities that we work uh, with our peers to try to be a force of good with an amazing bunch of friends and colleagues in the Amicus Cooperative, uh, which is probably another story for another day. That's a, that's a deep dive right there. And it's a learning curve. We are so, I don't know, so, so early in this phase of of becoming better at business and being vulnerable and admitting that we don't know exactly how to do it right. And we're open to learning and we're open to feedback. We're owning our privilege and uh, the tailwinds that put us here. 
and trying to use that to do good and realizing, you know, a while ago I realized, okay, so I'm a solar guy. I'm doing solar. I can do some good, make the world a better place by helping this household go solar. And that's evolved into from building a solar systems and solar projects to now I'm focused on building an organization to building Third mm-hmm. Sun Solar as the project. And it's a project mm-hmm. that makes other projects. It's a, it's a different level of focus. It allows me to be creative, but I'm, I'm not doing wire sizing calcs anymore. I've got a team doing that. I'm now thinking about culture. I'm thinking about attracting and retaining talent. I'm thinking about tapping into the vast resources of smart, motivated, creative people that it's going to take in order to to pull this off, to transition our energy infrastructure from the carbon-based one to the clean, you know, diversified one that we're at the transition of. And, uh, and it, you know, if you can hear it in my voice, it gets me pretty stoked. I, I like it. It also gets me overwhelmed because it's a big, big lift and it's scary. And we're stumbling around and we're stubbing our toes and we're making mistakes and we're trying our best. You know, starting the, the podcast is scary because here I am, a white, straight, cis, upper middle class man, you know, talking about racial and social justice and equity. And we're cognizant of that, that I'm not going to speak for others. I'm going to speak for me and I'm going to ask a lot of questions. And I've got a lot of privilege and I'm trying to use my privilege to amplify and be a megaphone for some good ideas and some good thinking being done by women and people from different backgrounds than, than myself. We don't have a really accurate count yet, but we're, we're keeping a tally of published episodes and trying to, are striving to, you know, represent the demographics of, of uh, the United States. What does that look like? Uh, it's hard. It's because of who I am in my network. In terms of who your guests are? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My, my Rolodex is white and male and, and yeah, straight. Don't I know it? <laughs> <laughs> and so in any case, there's some episodes where I cringe. I listen to myself talking over my guests. And a lot of that is, mm. you know, again, stuff we talked about before about my personality. I'm getting better um, mm. about letting, letting folks speak, but it's, it's all part of the journey. It's where we're at today and, and where, where we're striving. I want to circle back to two things before, and I do want to talk a little bit about the podcast. You mentioned Jeremy Rifkin. We'll, we'll link to the book. I, I see that first interview was written in 1981. I love it when we get book recommendations that are that far back because it starts to allow us to think about the first principles and the, the, the early thinking around what created the possibilities in the industry we're in. But there's another one in 1989. Is it just a rebranding of the book into the greenhouse world? Uh, do you know? You know, I haven't read that. He's, he's a prolific author. I mean, is it like a part two? Could be. There's entropy, a new world view, and then there's entropy into the greenhouse world. So I have a feeling they might be one and two sort of following one another. Have you read any of his writing on, uh, on other, uh, economic benefits? Like he, he wrote the European dream, the hydrogen economy, the age of access. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I skimmed through the hydrogen economy and, and didn't like it. Cause I'm kind of like, I don't know, hydrogen's not a fuel source. You know, it's a, it's a storage medium and a transport medium, and it might or might not have a role in, in the shift to clean energy. But again, I, I think he's, he's a pretty diverse guy and writes a lot of things. But I would say mm-hmm. that the original Entropy One 
was, was that, that yeah. uh, bellwether, you know, that, that big kind of aha moment for me. Cool. And then the second thing is, it seems to me like part of the generational bondage tied to coal was a core piece of Third Son now creating generational equity, allowing those coal miners to offering opportunity for them to work in the solar industry to transition to this third wave of, of solar, of solar power. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would put the word striving in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. I've got friends and peers that have either structured their business from day one as a worker owned democratic co-op or are actually making a, a purposeful transition. And we haven't gone that far. You know, Michelle and I are the owners of this business and are benefiting greatly from the risks that we took and, and the sleepless late nights that we had. And in some ways, also the more simple, you know, there's just two of us at the end of the day that we need to make a decision with. And we've got employees that, you know, get better benefits than they might have gotten otherwise and maybe a better pay rate uh, than they might have gotten otherwise. But, you know, we're certainly not you know, trying to present, pretend that we're, we're so righteous as to, you know, being, uh, being perfect. When we chatted back in uh, the late summer and you were getting ready to launch the podcast, I asked, uh, you know, a lot of folks look at a podcast as a marketing channel. Uh, when I started my podcast, I didn't see it that way. It was just a way for me to, to engage in conversation and sort of open up the black box, like let others see inside what's happening in the industry. And uh, it's evolved from there, but by and large, that's still true about the way we run Suncast. But I didn't have a product to sell. And, and I looked at your business and I thought, there's no way you're starting a podcast to like generate leads for Third Sun. <laughs> so explain to me the core concept of Solar for All and how it ties back to your own journey to, to identify, acknowledge uh, either a lack of understanding or gain understanding around uh, what, what justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion mean for you and for your business and how you wrap that into Solar for All. You know, Nico, hindsight is so powerful. and so. Before I answer your, your, your main question, I'll say that as I look back at 20 years of what's worked and what hasn't worked, and you know we've got outside advisors and marketing and branding specialists, you know today I know that we have a brand, that Third Sun Solar has a brand. And part of our brand is, I call it being true believers, being folks that are in it for the right reasons, and believe me, you know, at various times, I get pretty cynical about the gold rush mentality. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, more three-piece suits than Birkenstocks at the, you know, SPI convention. And, and that's not a bad thing. Capital is pretty important and pretty useful. But anyway, that said, we have a brand and we are a differentiated brand because we truly believe we walk the talk we use it. This building, this podcast is 100% clean energy with a solar array that's on the roof here. You know, we offset the mm. carbon of all of our trucks. I can't wait to buy electric trucks. And that's who we are. And it started out as just, that's just how I want to roll. That's how I want to do business. I want to do the solar first and then bring it to other people because it can help them. That's accidental, but also intentional in hindsight. You know, there's other people that say, hey, this has great growth potential. This is going to be the way the world's energy is going to be. Let's start a business and grow it and be ready for when the transition happens. You know, that was not our, our founding documents. So that's who we are. And so George Floyd's murder and 
the final straw tipping point of of that that led to some pretty big social movements and then the 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 reaction of the powers that be and uh the fear of of mostly white mostly middle class folks around that for many people was a wake up call and for me it was definitely a wake up call and led to a lot of self reflection and conversations about my complacency and my kind of complacency with being not a racist, but not necessarily doing everything I can to be anti-racist. And I wasn't coming up with stuff. I was reading the stuff and having these discussions, you know, with friends and peers and colleagues, loved ones. You know, my little sister, Monica, is is African-American. She's light-skinned, biracial. She's adopted. I had the benefit, along with, as we talked about earlier, having, you know, three sisters in a progressive household that was more feminist than, than, than average. I also had the advantage of being young and looking at the world, you know, and thinking about my sister and how she would be treated and how she's followed around in a store as a suspected shoplifter. And I'm not, you know, so. Mm. And you experienced that, you watched that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've yeah. had these conversations and I kind of, in the back, if you have, if, I don't know, maybe, maybe lots of people have, friends and colleagues, or, or they're just more in touch with humanity than I am. For me, having a, a bio, you know, a, a, not biological, but a, a family member, you know, thinking about what it would be like to be in her shoes has put me in a, a different space than I might've been otherwise. So anyway, that said, I realized that even with that background, I was still not putting energy into racism. And, and, you know, wasn't issue number one for me. And I'm still not sure where it stacks up or if we really need to stack things up, you know, having a sustainable planet and a, a livable world and, and addressing climate, you know, is and has been my number one focus professionally. But I realized with George Floyd's murder that I could be doing more and I've got privilege and I've got power and I am not using it as much as I could be. Um, and I've got some perspective too, you know, having a lot of women leaders and, and in our organization and being exposed to a lot of great solar companies through the Amicus network, as well as just my, my Rolodex of friends. There's some stories out there that I could amplify and there's some lessons that I could help learn and, and, and help share. And so that's, that's why I thought, okay, it's, you know, the podcast would be the way to do it. Originally, the podcast was suggested by Caitlin, our, our director of marketing, as a great way to, you know, amplify Third Sun Solar's brand. And I like to talk, and this would be a way to harness my talking skills. And it didn't start out with this focus. And so it evolved to say, hey, here's what I think would, was missing. This is what's not out there right now, at least in the solar space. It might be awkward. It might be a, a little bit of a, a learning curve. I'm going to have to be vulnerable. I'm going to be making mistakes on the air. I mean, there's some brutal mistakes on the air where my guests point these things out real time to me. And we just kind of treat that as an opportunity to, to share and learn and grow together. If you sum up to someone who doesn't know the industry and doesn't know your company, uh, what your podcast is about, how do you summarize it? Sure. So the podcast is focused at the intersection of clean energy, manufacturing, installation, 
all the different financing, all the different parts of the clean energy industry. Um, although it's mostly solar, we, we try to keep it clean energy because storage is growing and the, you know, the hell of the grid is part of the clean energy transition. So where that overlap is with that and then issues of justice, equity, inclusion, diversity. And I, and I truly believe that we need all hands on deck and to, to do this. And I think now because of the economy, probably more than anything else, people are realizing, hey, hiring and attracting quality people is a bigger and bigger part of, of success. And they're paying more attention to it today than they were a year ago. But I think we need to, you know, just to achieve the, the climate goals, we need to do it. And then, wow, what an incredible opportunity to achieve one goal and to achieve another goal. I mean, the Biden campaign with Build Back Better, you know, clicked on this. And I was somewhat cynical at the time thinking, okay, the focus groups or some advisors thought, all right, this is a way that we can talk about enviros and talk about racial and social and economic justice at the same time. But what an overlap. We are, what a huge opportunity if we do it right or, or do it more, more right than wrong to address deep rooted social and political and economic justice issues, you know, systemic racism. You know, apparently it's controversial to say that word, systemic racism. So just socializing that and getting people more comfortable admitting and owning that there is systemic racism that they benefit from is huge. I mean, I mean, again, as an entrepreneur, I've surrounded myself with myths and with belief systems and the self-made man that pulls himself up from his bootstraps through hard work, maybe luck, maybe being in the right place at the right time, maybe having a better idea. That's the story, right? And well, that's a story and that's a, a story we tell ourselves, but boy, oh boy, I think that the real story is I've got tailwinds. I've got a world ready for me to run as a white male, upper middle-class educated person. It reminds me, you've probably, you've probably seen the YouTube video, sorry to cut you off, but you've probably seen the YouTube video where the PE teacher steps up to the high school students and he says, oh, we're going to race. Here's a hundred dollar bill. Uh, but before we start the race, if you are white, take one step forward. And if you come from a family that makes more than a hundred thousand dollars a year, take another step forward. And all the, you know, you see all these kids that are like super happy because they're getting closer and closer to the goal of the hundred dollars before the race ever starts. Yeah, that, that, that's a great, a great metaphor. And people are still arguing about that. They're so attached to this myth of, of an egalitarian meritocracy, which is, you know, one of the tools that keeps the status quo the way it is. And, um, and a lot of people buy into it. So, you know, it's a balancing act because I, I hate the victim mentality and I don't, I think it can be, mm. you know, really detrimental in a lot of ways our self-talk and our visualization and our, our expectations are very powerful things. And again, I think the, the, the mindset that I've grasped to came from, I believe the book was uh, Waking Up White, and it was recommended to me, um, you know, uh, by a friend with a list of, you know, self, self-education books. And it really turned my free market, self-made an entrepreneurial mindset on its on its side and, and really helped me realize what I now view as, you know, not all this or all that. This is by Debbie Irving, right? Yes, yes. 
it's a useful book. And I think that the concept that stood out for me that I've, I've grabbed onto is headwinds and tailwinds. Sure, there's Black entrepreneurs that do very well, and they have succeeded despite the headwinds and without as many tailwinds. And that's where class comes into it. You know, there's, there's Black entrepreneurs that went to private school and then went to Harvard. They certainly have some tailwinds behind them. And there's some white, you know, uh, males that grew up a quarter mile away from me in a trailer that have a lot of uh, maybe invisible headwinds and are not having the same tailwinds that you and I had. So it's a useful, it's a useful framework to kind of reevaluate the stories we tell ourselves and the myths that we kind of use to explain our worlds. I have a sense that my audience probably is representative of our industry, which is by and large, um, I'll say not devoid, but greatly lacking black uh, and female participation in comparison. A lot of folks look like you and I, a lot of folks potentially have already rolled their eyes and, uh, and hit skip on this episode because it's two more white men talking about uh, understanding racism, anti-racism, injustice, equity, diversity. You know, I think both, both of us fall in the category of very much wanting to understand what we don't, what we don't see. If I'm not mistaken, it, it was Blake at Amicus who, who you've been longtime friends with, helped you sort of start this road of self-education. Would you mind sharing with us the list of books that have been helpful for you? Because I think that there are a lot of folks who are quietly struggling with what do I not know that I don't know? How do I actually raise my hand and say, I don't know what cis means and I don't know how to sort of not say the wrong thing. And I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing and I uh, don't know what the right thing is. And I always thought I knew the right thing. Would you be able to help us sort of educate the audience in that regard? The best I can. And I'm, again, you know, I don't want to think that I, I'm there yet or that I, I've got the answers, but um, I'll share the reading list that was shared with me because I think it's great. I've not yet read all those books. Um, and I'll also call out that vulnerability and uh, Brene Brown, even though, you know, in a lot of ways, she's not talking about racism and she's not talking about this subject matter, but she set me up for being ready for this stuff with the whole concept of armoring versus vulnerability. And, and, you know, I'm a, a, a big scholar, not scholar, I'm a big student of leadership and good to great. And a lot of leadership books, you know, click for me and I, and I, you know, always trying to get better. And so it, even before this, uh, this big racial awakening that we're in the midst of happened, I was kind of teed up and primed for to be open to some of these things and to not be as afraid of getting it wrong and to be ready to try and fail and learn and grow. So that's useful as well. So I'd say all of Brene Brown's stuff and I'm a big fan of her podcast. That's a big part of it as well as the, the stuff specific to, uh, to race and privilege. You use the term anti-racist. And many of us might say openly, I'm not racist. What's the difference between being not racist and being anti-racist? Yeah, uh, I'm sure that there's more elegant definitions around, but I guess the way I used it before was I think of myself as being not a racist. I don't overtly you know, discriminate based on race or make stereotypical decisions based on, on race overtly. That said, even with my experience growing up with my 
younger sister being, you know, black, even with that in the back of my head all the time, I still believe that I have racist tendencies, that I I make stereotyping mm-hmm. judgments. You know, if I'm in a big city and I'm in a neighborhood that I'm not in, I look at a white guy and I look at a black guy and my wiring is more on edge and defensive thinking that the black guy is a threat. And so mm. admitting that's hard, admitting that's painful. Yeah. I don't want it to be that way, but I'm going to be honest in saying that in my just kind of fight or flight instinctual wiring, I've been trained that the black guy is likely more of a threat or the Latino guy is more likely a threat. So that's part of it. But the biggest part of it is, is anti is active. Not being a racist is, is passive. It's saying, okay, yeah. I'm not going to be a racist. I'm not going to discriminate. I'm not going to uh, be, you know, uh, a stereotyper. But then if you're passive and benefiting from a racist society, which I, I now am kind of comfortable admitting I am, I think it's pretty hard for a lot of people to just come to grips with the fact that even though they didn't own slaves, the fact that slaves built the economy of this country and if they're middle class, they likely are indirectly, generationally benefiting from the slave holdings of white people and just the general economy of, of North America. You know, we've benefited from racist slavery and um, being an anti-racist is saying, okay, it's time for me to do something about it. It's time for me to be active. It's time for me to, at the very least, educate myself and join a group of people talking about themselves, talking about this, um, raising children differently than I might have otherwise and doing things, taking action. And that, that really depends on what your talents are, what your skills are, what your gifts are. And for me, it's doing this podcast. My gifts are, are talking with people. And maybe one of the strengths I have is my Rolodex and my network of, you know, 20 plus years um, my NAPSEP board membership, my Amicus board membership, lots of beers with lots of people at lots of trade shows. How can I tap into that? And so that's the hope is that I can facilitate conversations that even if it reaches one or two people and clicks a clicks a light on and starts them on a path of self-exploration, you know, that's part of the transformation. And so that's my my spin on trying to be an anti-racist. When you look back on 20 years of doing this and by and large doing it as an entrepreneur, are there key lessons or takeaways, maybe even mentors in your life and career that helped you along the way? And how do you pass those along to the folks that you now have influence or access uh, to? Yeah. Thanks for asking that, Nico. I'll start with something that's really fresh. It was just last night that I was talking with Michelle, my wife and co-founder, you know, we're a bootstrap company and we started in the attic with my cell phone and my truck and started investing in tools. And, you know, we're more of a self-employed than really running a business until we, we had the first uh, employee. That's not the mindset start of being a startup. I think there's lots of startups that decide uh, that they don't want to be under-resourced. And so we didn't raise capital. We basically built from from zero and it worked out at the time. But the culture that was shaped from that lean startup 
bootstrap mentality is still part of where we're at today. One of our core values is we call it driven. And, you know, at the end of the day, partly it tries to encapsulate a focus on craft, a focus on quality, a focus on efficiency and continuous improvement. But I had an outside person come in and, you know, ask me about our core values and kind of like was taken aback by that. It's like driven. Yeah. Like nose to the grindstone, like, like uh, bony fingers and work your fingers to the bone and stay up all night and be underpaid and over overworked. And I like having them frame it that way. didn't sound so glamorous, but it, you know, that's, that's one of the core values that we're still wondering, is this really sustainable? You know, we surround ourselves and the folks that, that are thriving at third sensor, a lot of them are really hard workers. And I'm not sure if that's really sustainable or really something to be proud of. So I guess that's something that if I could go back in time with uh, the knowledge of today, I probably would have raised money. I probably would have put together a business plan and, you know, not spend it all on office chairs like Silicon Valley startups might, but at least be able to operate at a loss for five years and to be fully resourced and to have people working with good work-life balances and with a little bit less stress in their lives. Um, we've probably lost more people than we had to over time because of the, the, the stress level and the culture of you work. You asked too much of them. Yeah. But on the other hand, part of our culture is mission-driven, is mission-oriented. We're here to save the planet, man. We're here to address survival. And when survival's on the line, you put your nose to the grindstone and, and burn the midnight oil and lean in and get it done. And so it's a balancing act because that's also a, I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be motivated not to, you know, sell more widgets, you know, in Cincinnati at Procter & Gamble, which is what a lot of my, my college peers were getting excited about. I was getting excited about, you know, trying to, to solve social, you know, big issues of, of right and wrong and of planetary survival. I want to come back to this idea. Well, first of all, thank you. As an entrepreneur who's bootstrapped his business and who's gone through many cycles of should I raise money? Uh, I really appreciate what you just said about the retrospect of 20 years. It's something that I, and I know many listeners think about a lot. The notion of driven, uh, it hits home for me because I consider myself a driven person. I also have a business partner who went to an event called Driven. And there's a little bit of a mania around the whole idea of like the grind. Yet I recognize that sort of, so Oxford, I just pulled this up. Oxford defines Driven as relentlessly compelled by the need to accomplish a goal, very hardworking and ambitious. And then Miriam Webster identifies it as determined to succeed, highly energetic and motivated. And I think that we can be empathic, compassionate entrepreneurs who are also relentlessly compelled by the need to accomplish a goal. And I uh, I, I resonate with the question you and your wife are asking is like, okay, but where's the balance? How do, how do we actually language that? And if a word in our society becomes, if it becomes hijacked by a niche sort of community to mean something else, then how do we pivot from that? <laughs> right. Um, how do we say we are very hardworking and ambitious and capture that in a word? Because driven certainly for the last 20 years would have been a compelling word to use for that. That's really that's really helpful. I didn't anticipate the depth that we would get out of that question this time. Um, and I love the the idea, and I'm going to have to explore with you a little bit more offline, I think, 
about how you would have raised money and what you would have put that money towards and the idea that it would, you'd operate for a loss for five years. I have more questions than answers right now. Yeah. Well, part of it is, part of it is trust too. You know, the, the vulture capitalists, the bad guys, I was at least telling a lot of stories to myself about what taking money would mean and having to answer to others. You know, part of the entrepreneurial story for me was doing it my way and, and answering to, to myself. And so I think we're also to more or less, a lot of us have issues with fear. You know, we talked earlier about how overlapping our personal psychology and, and growth and baggage is with our, our business and how, how they both reflect each other, or, you know, kind of amplify each other. And so, yeah, some of the, the, the work that I've been doing, you know, as a, as a human, as a person has been around my ego and around fear and around trying to gain other people's approval and, and trying to meet other people's expectations or to prove, you know, to prove them wrong that, you know, I, I shouldn't have been kicked out of that fourth grade classroom. By gosh, I'm a success. And, you know, you, you look behind the curtains of a lot of quote unquote, very successful entrepreneurs and you find really complicated folks with complicated backgrounds. And a lot of times, a lot of sadness and dysfunction. You know, that'd be the other advice I would say. If you want to be a successful business person, there's no difference between that and being a successful human. It's a lot of overlap and, you know, start start getting some therapy and doing some work and getting vulnerable and growing as a as a as a father or a or a, a spouse and as a friend. It's it's all it all overlaps. It's all interconnected. I love that you took the words out of my mouth. The next question was what advice do you have? So uh, I'll just repeat it for those who maybe strayed away for a second. So fellow entrepreneurs, if you want to be a successful business person or entrepreneur, it's the same as being a successful human. Look to therapy, vulnerability, uh, empathy, personal growth. The same tools that you would look to to save your marriage are the same ones that are going to help you be a good boss, a good partner, uh, a good manager, a good employee for that matter. What do you believe, having looked at our industry through the lens of two decades, what do you believe is holding us back right now as an, as an industry, solar being the predominant or the dominant version of power generation and, you know, giving us energy freedom. Yeah. This kind of goes back to Jeremy Rifkin and really thinking about, you can't separate commerce or entrepreneurial organization from society and the way society is organized. You know, really I think people are you know, nibbling around the edges and there's some, some folks starting to talk about this overtly, but I think social justice and economic justice and exploitation and the capitalist system, dare I say, um, as organized the way we do it today in North America is really, I mean, uh, structural issues are, are going to have to be addressed if we're going to survive as a species. I don't think that a hundred years from now, our you know successful future generations are gonna be living a life, you know, a happy, you know, utopian life with clean energy, basically happy humans with enough food to eat and uh, meaningful lives, unless we really address inequity, injustice, and exploitation. I think if you look back, it seems pretty clear to connect the dots 
Um, I'm trying to remember what's that time Tom Hanks movie. It's about time travel and Ash. He's got a big scar down his face. You can barely tell it's him, but it's a cloud Atlas. I should rewatch cloud Atlas. I, I watched it, you know, on video late to the game, but it kind of deals with some metaphysical time travel and such. But basically the theme is we are repeating the same story over and over again. And that story is man's inhumanity to man and, and exploiting others, you know, is happening in the past. It's happening in some sci-fi future and it's happening in the present. And I think we've got to break that cycle. I don't think that there's a sustainable clean energy future unless there's a sustainable way that we socially organize ourselves. So much of our energy, you know, our, our not electrical energy, but our, our societal energy is spent on trying to keep the duct tape on and keeping the, the ship running um, without too many of the folks from the steerage deck revolting and too many of the folks from the, you know, the elite deck losing any perception of, of their elite lives. I think that's unsustainable. There's not enough duct tape to keep things patched together. So whether or not that's an abrupt, violent and uh, change with lots of suffering, or if we can smoothly evolve towards something, I think that we're not going to have economic and, and energy change without social and cultural change. Well, Jeff, I, I could ask another two hours worth of questions, and I probably will at some point. But where can folks who have been inspired by this conversation best engage with you? Where do you like to be found? Yeah, I'm active on LinkedIn. I'm trying to get off of other social media, but somehow LinkedIn (laughs) seems to be okay. I've got the the podcast out there and we're always looking Mm -hmm. for guests. We're looking for recommendations of subject matter and guests. So that's solarforall.show. Third Sun Solar has got a bunch of content on historic blogs and Anyway, I, I, I love what I do. I, I mean, I'm super lucky to be able to work through others and to kind of leverage smarter and, and more talented people than I to work as a team and to surround myself with great people. I've got so many friends in the industry and the mutual support in, in the solar, at least with the crew that I run with, is so, so helpful. There's no way we would have made it this far without a lot of phone calls and a lot of, uh, you know, teary-eyed beers and high-five beers and just uh, hanging out with my peeps. It's super helpful to have that network. Uh, I, I'll, I regret that we didn't dig a little deeper into that in this interview. If you find yourself wanting to be a part of a company like what has been described today and to get away from the coasts and experience life in flyover country, uh, I would encourage you to check out Third Sun, Sol- Third Sun Solar uh, for all the reasons that you've heard on this podcast. We're in a talent war and Jeff is no different than the rest of us in this industry looking for great people. Uh, so I would encourage you to find one of those methods and reach out to Jeff and his team if what they're building sounds like something you'd be interested in. Jeff, let's end today with, as we always do, a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? So looking ahead, I think that the technology is kind of getting boring, right? Solar is you know, going to continue to get a little bit better and a little bit less expensive. Batteries and lithium, same thing. But connecting the dots, the utility grid itself, the wires, T&D, transmission and distribution, 
that's the next big frontier. And I, I foresee an overlap of, I don't know if it's going to be called blockchain, but blockchain enables these transactions. And so a virtual diversified post-monopoly grid infrastructure is going to become a big missing part of this puzzle where you've got on-site and off-site generation storage, and then you've got demand management and load shedding and smart homes and clothes dryers and hot water heaters that can cycle off and on when called upon. And, you know, companies like my company might be doing it for our clients, or it might be home builders might be building homes that do it for their clients, or it might be new companies and new verticals that don't really exist, but will be using software and the marketplace and technology to balance all of this stuff so that we can have that clean energy future. And I mean, this could be as big as it's sunny in this hemisphere and it's nighttime in that hemisphere. I would say uh, that's that's going to be the next big thing, and that's still a while's off. Jeff Greenfield is the co-founder and CEO of Third Sun Solar, and I have had the intense pleasure today to not just learn from 20 years of solar founder experience, but from many, many more than two years of deep experience in thinking about uh, justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, how it matters to not only our industry, but to the society that we live in at large and how without it, our industry is in jeopardy, uh, as is our society of not achieving the goals that we've set out for ourselves. Jeff, thank you for opening so many new doors for us to walk through and to talk about together. Thank you for sharing here on Suncast. Look forward to feedback from folks about their uh, exploration of solar for all and congratulations on launching the show. Thanks so much, Nico. Been a fan and listener for quite a while and it's uh, it's an honor to to be a guest and uh, be actually part of the part of the Suncast family. We got to do this, man. It's uh, all about planetary survival. Nothing heavy, but that's that's what it's all about. Not just energy, but social organization. All right, Solar Warriors. Well, that's a wrap on this really inspiring conversation with my friend Jeff Greenfield. Were you inspired? What did you learn? I learned that you can start right where you are. And you can build something of meaning in every community, in every corner of this United States. And I learned that there are some truly inspiring people out there in the world. And as they usually say, behind every great man is a great woman. Jeff has a great team and his wife and their team are now running full steam on Third Sun again and and tracking to show everyone in middle America and beyond what it looks like to lead with empathy and excellence. And I do, as I said before, hope that you'll check out the Solar for All podcast. I was just checking out the playlist of recent episodes. And my friend Cesar Barbosa was featured here in of New Power here in December. Most recently, Miss Emily O'Leary, at least most recently at the time of me recording this, Miss Emily O'Leary was featured, one of our female women-owned solar construction companies right here out of the Southeast in Georgia. So many inspirational episodes already published. They are uh, nearing 20 episodes now. So go check that out. And if you are 
eager to keep learning. Well, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find resources and highlights from this discussion, along with social media links for how to find Jeff and his fantastic team, the book recommendations, and even how to connect to his podcast over on the blog at mysuncast.com. Since I know you're already hopping online, I'd love to know that you listened to this episode and you can let me know that by either going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and leaving us your enthusiastic rating and review, or you can hop on LinkedIn and share this episode and why it inspired you. Don't forget to tag me and Jeff and thank Jeff for joining the Suncast tribe. Next week, we bring you our final episode of the year, and it's an amazing and another inspiring story from my new friend Jim Gale from Food Forest Abundance as we wrap out 2021 in style, and you're going to not want to miss this one. Thanks again to our sponsor, Energy Toolbase, for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com and click on their logo on the homepage, or you could scroll over to the sponsor page. It's where you can learn how you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like you twice a week, the way they have for the last quarter. We are taking applications for second quarter of 2022 to help sponsor the show. Again, make it free for you and the rest of the solar warriors out there. Remember, as always, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. Oh, and by the way, Merry Christmas. And if I don't see you again soon, Happy New Year.